Well, how about I pray and uh, ask God to help us. Father, we do thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the great riches of relationship with you. And we pray today that as we look at this passage together, that you would be at work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, I want to start today's talk by telling you a story. Uh, The story is of two young men. One is a prince. He is a very godly young man and he is very able. The other young man, uh, but he's the son of a, um, well, a powerful, but very, um, un- but jealous and very unpredictable king. Now the other, the other young man is a shepherd boy. And this shepherd boy has been remarkably successful. In fact, he has been so successful that a number of people are beginning to wonder if he might actually be the future king. He's won battles that the king had long given up on and the prince has looked on. He's loyal to his father, but he really likes what he sees in the shepherd boy and he's faced with this decision, what should he do? You see, here in this shepherd boy is a person like him. Here's a person he could spend time with. Here's a person that he'd love to become friends with. And so the two young men become friends, the firmest of friends. Now, of course, you will have guessed now, the name of the prince is Jonathan and the name of the shepherd is David and the name of the king is Saul. And the books of Samuel tell us their story. And they tell us that just as Jonathan observed David and Saul he sees the writing on the wall. Sorry, as Jonathan observes David and Saul, he sees the writing on the wall. He sees Saul the king gradually becoming mad with jealousy. And he sees David rising and rising and rising in stature and in status. Jonathan knows that eventually Saul will lose out to this winsome, charming, handsome young man. And Jonathan decides that though he knows he's going to win in the contest, he will stick with his father, that he will honour his father as God has required. And so he and David enter into a covenant with each other. And in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, you might like to look it up, chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Jonathan says these words to David in verses 14 to 17. 1 Samuel 20, 14 to 17. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off from every every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him even as he loved his own soul. The books of Samuel tell us that, well, Jonathan had it right. He did stick by his father, and his father engaged in battle with the Philistines, and his father lost the battle, and his father died, and his son Jonathan died alongside him, and time passed. There was some civil war in Israel and eventually David became king. And in 1 Samuel 9, he remembers his covenant with Jonathan when he is full and in court and reigning. 
and he says these words. It's in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Is there anyone left from the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Friends, David and Jonathan show us some great things about covenants. Covenants are, of course, all about relationships. But like all relationships, covenants have obligations and commitments. And Jonathan knows that. And he calls upon David to remember that. That is to remember that they entered into covenant and covenants have obligations and commitments. He says to David, don't forget your steadfast love to me. In other words, he says, David, remember our relationship. Remember it. Act accordingly. Don't forget me. Don't forget the relationship. And David knows all about covenants. And so he looks for a way that he can remember Jonathan and exercise steadfast love or covenant love toward him. Friends, covenants are all about relationships. That is their core. And relationships have obligations and relationships have commitments. And that applies to a relationship between two people and it applies to a relationship between God and his people. God has loved Israel. We saw him make that crystal clear yesterday in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 1. He's formed a relationship with Israel. He loves Israel. He is faithful to Israel. He's performed his obligation to Israel. Now what will Israel do toward him? What is their response to his love? How will they react to what he has done for them? Well, this is the focus of the section we're going to look at today. And so look at verses, uh, verse 6 with me. We're going to look at, at all the way through to chapter 2, uh, well, a, sec- a, a way into chapter 2. Now, the first thing that God says is that if he is in a relationship with his people, they have not acted as though they are in relationship with him. You see, he goes on to say, look, in society, in general society, sons honour fathers and servants honour their masters. But Israel has not shown honour to God. They have abused God. That's what those first few verses are about. They have not shown the respect that the relationship demands. And that is the heading for this whole section I want to look at. God's people have not shown God the respect that fits relationship with them. And in the next few verses, God focuses on three groups of people, and I want you to watch these three groups of people very carefully. In the first few verses, he focuses on priests, the people making offerings and the outsider. Sorry, first the priests, then the people making offerings, and then in the middle, the outsiders. Let's see what God has to say about each of them. First, look at what God has to say about the priests. Look at verse 6. God says, It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. God's priests, in other words, despise God's name. And how do they do it? Well, they do it by offering polluted sacrifices. Look at verse 7 there. Uh, It says this. Sorry, I'm just finding it here. Uh, You have defiled food on my altar. You see what they're doing? They offer polluted sacrifices. God's law explicitly says that when you bring sacrifices, only bring unblemished animals. Only offer unblemished animals to God. And then in verse 8 we're told that God's people bring blind animals. They sacrifice crippled animals, diseased animals, 
what they are doing is hugely offensive to God. And in the second half of verse 8, God tells them to try this out on their governor. Can you see what he's saying? There's a deep irony here. He says, look, give this a shot, why don't you? You take the very things that you're offering to me and go and try, you have obligations to your governor, well, go try offering them to him. You know, go and take the blind and the lame and give it to your governor who you're meant to be feeding. See what he says. And the answer is explicitly clear in one sense, or implicitly clear. They have obligations to supply a governor with food and you can't cheat a governor and yet you think you can cheat God. Would the governor accept? No, he wouldn't. And God's people, though, carry this very thing out toward God. And in verse 10, God says how sick to death he is of this activity. Read it. It is very strong. Verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the door of the temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you. Can you see what God is saying? This is incredibly strong. I mean, if I was to put it in our language, God is saying, I would prefer you abandon worship altogether than do what you are doing. I would rather have no worship than this sham. I would rather have no sacrifices than this contemptible behaviour. I'd rather not even have the altar fire lit than for you to be doing what you are doing. Now, that's huge disgust, isn't it? God says, don't even bother if you're going to do it this way. However, it's not just the priests that God rebukes. Have a look at how he goes on. The people who bring the sacrifices themselves are not without blame. Look at verses 13 and 14. In verse 14, God says, I am not simply a Persian governor, as it were. I am a great king. Can you see that in verse 14? He's talking about himself as a great king. And as a great king, he will not accept injured, crippled, diseased animal for sacrifices. And in fact, he curses his people who cheat. They have acceptable rams in their their flocks and they bring the ones that are no good for breeding. You know, you look around and you think, what can I give God today? Oh, that one's going to be of no use to me. I'll take that ram and I'll give that to God. They give God the dregs. God hates that sort of worship. It is the leftovers of worship. It's as though you've got nothing else left to give and you say, oh, oh yeah, I forget, I've got this vague relationship with God somewhere. Perhaps I might give him a little bit just to keep him happy. That's what is going on here. They treat God and the things of God with contempt. Look at verse 12, which sort of is very, very strong. It says, you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled. And it's food, well, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously. Can you see what's going on? (sighs) Who cares? Can you see how this fits with what we did last night? If you think God doesn't love you, you're sort of into the mechanics of it. You say, oh, I'll give him a bit of this and a bit of that, and really, why bother? It's not really worth it, because he's really not interested in us. And, you know, that's what's going on here. Now, What I'd like you to do, in other words, this is not the worship that you give a great king. It's the offal you throw to your dogs. That's what's going on here. Now, what I'd like you to do is look at verse 11. My translation says this. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I need to tell you this verse can also be translated in the present tense as well as the future tense. 
We don't really know which one it is. It's hard to tell in the original language. But what we do know is this. Whether it's about people offering worship in the future or in Malachi's day, notice what it's saying. The verse bang in the middle of priests getting it wrong and the people of God getting it wrong is about who getting it right. Can you see who's getting it right here? Here in the middle are a group of people from the nations offering true, uncorrupted worship. What a rebuke this is. This is incredible. The people of God who are in relationship with God don't fulfil the obligations of that relationship and here are rank outsiders who have no obligations to God fulfilling the obligations of the people of God. It's incredible, isn't it? Overwhelming. This passage is so strong. It is full of God's disgust. God is clear. He hates, hates, hates empty worship. He would rather have no worship than empty worship. In Malachi 2, God changes gear a little. He has expressed his disgust at the behaviour of priests. Uh, he, now he tells them what is coming. Look at it there. You see, Deuteronomy, have a look uh, in your Bibles. Flip back to Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. So Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. It says this, and I'm only going to read, I just want you to notice the last part of the verse in chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, It says this, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to stand before the Lord to minister and to pronounce blessings in, the, in his name, as they still do till today. So can you see what the role of priests was to do, apart from carrying around arcs? It was to offer blessing in God's name. But look at what God says in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says this, If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Can you see what God is saying? If you don't listen, if you don't, you Levites, you priests, don't turn things around and start honouring my name, then I will curse you, and more than that, I will turn the very thing that is meant to be what you do, blessing people, I'll turn your blessings into curses. Then look at verse 3. You see, priests in, the ancient, in ancient Israel were meant to be holy. They were prohibited from touching certain things, such as corpses and so on, that would make them unclean. But God says they will be made ceremonially unclean. Can you see what God says? He says, I will take the offal, you know, all the bits that no one wants, they don't even want to eat, they don't want to touch, I will take the offal and I'll spread it on your faces and you will be carried off with it. Can you see what's being said? You're meant to be ceremonially clean. I will make you ceremonially unclean if you continue to do this you will, as it were, be shoved out of God's presence because ceremonially unclean people can't supervise sacrifices. Why? Because God's priests have a purpose. God's priests have a role in God's, in Israel. Verses 4 to 7 say that their role is to lead and to teach. Look at what it says in verse 4. 
It says, and you will know that I've sent you this admonition so that you may, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Um, so, can you see this? See the word admonition? That is what they're meant to be doing. Now look at verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction. Here's the other role of priests. They are meant to be teachers of God's people. But they haven't. And so verse 8 says they have failed spectacularly. Look at verse 8. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. And verse 9 pronounces judgment. Look at it there in verse 9. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways and have shown partiality in matters of the law. So there's the priests, the leaders of Israel. Now I want you to turn to verses 10 to 16. Now it's very difficult to understand these verses and I think often people don't, they just take little sections of them and don't do the right work on them. So have a look at them with me. Remember what I said, covenants are about relationships. Covenants have two sides to them. On the one side, God says, I will love my people. And on the other side, he says, you, my people, are expected to respond back to me. So, chapter 1 showed us that God has not failed. He has loved and loved well. In chapter 2, he's shown his people have failed. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers? By breaking faith with one another. Can you see what's being said? God is clear. His people have broken faith with each other. But look at verse 11. What he goes on to say is not only have they broken faith with each other, they have broken faith with God. They are a faithless lot of people. How have they been faithless? Well, Malachi gives us two examples, and here's the bit that's hard to understand. They have shown faithfulness, unfaithfulness by marrying outside the faith. Can you see what's happening here? Verse 11 says that God's people have married foreign women, the worshippers of foreign gods. And in effect, what they've done is they've said this. I don't think worship of God is that important. Covenant with God is that important. In fact, I don't think it's more important than marrying a wife from another faith. And I know that in doing that she'll want to bring her gods with her, but I'd much rather have her than allegiance to this God. Can you see that's what's going on? So in one sense it's a demonstration of your faithlessness toward God. The second example is given in verse 14. God's people have shown faithlessness by being faithless in the most important relationship in life. They have broken faith with their wives by divorcing them. Can you see, what is the central thing about marriage? It's about faithfulness, isn't it? It's about being faithful to a spouse. Just like a covenant with God, what the people of Israel have done is they've broken covenant with their wives. God hates divorce. Why? Because divorce is all about faithfulness and unfaithfulness and God hates unfaithfulness because at the core of his being he is faithfulness. God hates divorce for that reason. 
God is about faithfulness and divorce is about unfaithfulness. Friends, there's our passage, so let's see if we can summarise it. Um, what, God, what is God saying to his covenant people? How have they responded to his love? How have they treated the God who loves them? Well, first, they've engaged in rotten worship. They've engaged in rotten worship. They have given God the leftovers of their worship. And that can only be because they have absolutely no respect for him. They have no respect for his law. He himself is of little or no consequence or significance for them. Second, they have rotten leadership. Verses 4 to 6 talked about Levi. It talked about his godly leadership. True instruction was on the tongue of Levi. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with God in peace and in uprightness. He turned many people away from sin. But what about the leadership of Malachi's day? Well, it didn't follow Levi. It was corrupt, degenerate and rotten to the core. Third thing is rotten family and relational life. See, what is God's intention? God's intention is that his people mimic him in family life. He is, as he is to them, so they are to be to each other. Do you notice that's why when you're reading through the New Testament epistles, do you notice where they often end up? Think about Corinthians. It doesn't end up this way, but it's scattered all the way through Corinthians. Think about Colossians. Think about Ephesians. Where do they often end up? In family life, don't they? Why? Because relationship with God is to be reflected in the most intimate of all relationships. It is the place where we are to be most like God, that is, in our families. As he is loving and faithful, we are to be loving and faithful. As he is generous and kind, they are to be generous and kind in family life. As he cares for children, they are to care for their children. As he loves his bride, they are to love their bride. Instead, they are marrying outside the faith, they are divorcing their wives, and they have rotten family lives. Friends, do you remember what I said yesterday? We too are in covenant with God, brought, bought by the blood of his son Jesus Christ. We have the example of Jesus who showed us how to live a godly life. But we Christians fail in these same three areas. Let me give you some examples. Now, I'm going to give you examples from Melbourne because they're really safe. And you can cross-apply them to yourself because I don't know you well enough. But let me explain by taking you for a little journey through Melbourne churches. As I travel around churches, I see rotten worship all the time. Now, I don't mean badly performed music. I mean something much deeper than this. For example, I notice that it is not unusual to be in a church service and to sing song after song that does not even mention Jesus, let alone the work that God has done in his world in creation. Sometimes we don't even get that. I try to test, my wife has told me off for this, so if you want to tell me off for it as well, you can. But I tried a little test for the first six months of last year. I said that I would have a silent protest about church music. Now what I meant by that is, I would not open my mouth 
and sing a song that did not talk about Jesus or God's actions in his world. Do you know what? The end result was there were some times when I didn't sing in church for the whole church service. Now I noticed your songs are pretty good, but the songs that we were singing were songs full of adoration. They were musically so uplifting, but they had nothing about what God had done, either in Jesus or in the world. Friends, that's rotten worship. It's not good worship. And you know, if I wanted to put it really strongly, God would say, I'd rather you wouldn't sing at all than sing that stuff. That's what God, he wants worship that truly centres on him. But I think that worship is uh, much more than that, isn't it? It's much more than a few songs in church. Rotten worship is also when you come to church and you praise God and then go to university or work and cheat and steal and thieve. That's rotten worship as well. Rotten worship is when you come to church and praise God, but then don't change your life during the week. Rotten worship is when you have great theology or sing theologically sound songs, but don't love people. That also is rotten worship. Rotten worship is when you love God, but don't love your neighbour. You read 1 John, he'll tell you that. He says, you know, how can you say you love God who you can't see when you can't even love your neighbour who you can see? How can that be right? No, that's rotten worship. He doesn't use the word worship, but that's what he's saying. Or it's when you spend all your time and your money on yourself but do nothing for the poor, the disadvantaged, the powerless, the friendless, the godless. That's rotten worship too. That's saying, I love being accepted by God, but I can't be bothered accepting other people. I love receiving the mercy of God, but I can't be bothered being merciful to others. I love God befriending me, but I can't be bothered befriending others. I love God going out of his way for me in the death of his son, but I can't be bothered going out of my way for others. Well, there's no mirroring of God in your relationship and that is rotten worship. The worship that God desires is the offering of your whole being back to him in response to what he has done for you. That's true worship. But the modern church is also similar to Malachi's day in other ways. There's much rotten leadership in our churches. Over the past few years, I suppose they've been advertised here just as much as they have elsewhere in the Christian world, we have seen world-renowned leaders cheat on their wives. We have seen world-renowned Christian leaders visit prostitutes. But some of the most rotten leadership, I think, occurs when our leaders don't do what God appointed them to do. He appointed them to pastor his people. And in the Bible, being a pastor is to be a a teacher. That's what it means. To pastor is to teach. And there are many churches in our world today where pastors no longer open their Bibles and where they no longer teach people from the Scriptures. Friends, I've noticed in the churches I have visited, again we'll make it at a long distance away, in Australia, I don't know if you've noticed this in your churches, but our pastors are increasingly dropping more and more of the Bible out of our services 
in Australia is now not uncommon. I grew up as an Anglican. Well, I became an Anglican when I went to theological college and it was not unusual in an Anglican service to have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm and perhaps some other sections, things called canticles, in the prayer book service. Okay, But now we've dropped the canticles, we've dropped the psalms, we've dropped the Old Testament reading and we have a greatly reduced New Testament reading in many churches that I go to today. So what is that saying? You're saying, we think something else is important than hearing from God. And who are making those decisions? The pastors. So what are they doing? The pastors are throwing their churches into an increasingly insubstantial diet. And teaching from the Bible is becoming less and less in theological colleges. Theological colleges are dropping more and more of Bible subjects and putting more and more of ministry subjects in. That's what's happening the world around. Friends, we have much rotten worship, we have much rotten leadership, but we also have much rotten family lives. You see, even in Christian families, parents don't love their children. They don't rear them in the faith. They don't teach them the truth and children don't honour their parents and don't respect them and don't care for them in their old age. Most of you South East Asians are much better than we are at doing this. But we in Australia are increasingly not doing it. And the statistics in Australia for Christian marriage breakdown is not that different from the statistics for non-Christian marriage breakdown. Friends, These are very serious questions Malachi is asking us. They're not just about, you know, a bunch of people way back there not offering God good worship. They're about us not offering God good worship. They're about us not mimicking him in our family life. They're about us not leading God's people correctly. Friends, I want to ask you some serious questions. Have you experienced God's love? Are you in covenant with him? Well, if you are, how do you show it? How have you responded to God's love? Do you love God? How can you tell? Modelling life on God's word and not finding it burdensome to do so, that's one good example. Modelling life on godly leaders modelling marriages and relationships with others on the selfless giving of Christ, those are the marks of those who love God. They love as they have been loved. This is love. That you know God's love and that you show it in your love for both him and others. So if you wanted to reduce all the commandments of God into two, what would they be? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. You see, that's what Christian life is about. It is about reflecting your relationship with God, your covenant with God in the world. Worship is not something you do, if I can put it this way, with your hands raised, your eyes closed, It is something that you do with your eyes open on your neighbour and your hands open. That's what it is essentially about. It is about responding to what you know of God 
in the realities of life. Let's pray. Father God, help us to love you and help us to love our neighbour. Help us to worship you truly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.